Psalm 3 says, O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, you are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept, and I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people. I will not be afraid uh, of many thousands for those, even those who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, and save me, O my God. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the miracle that it is to, uh, for you to have spoken to us and for us to be able to, to hear you and receive your word. God, we pray that we would not take that for granted. We pray that um, we would uh, appreciate it and, and savor it and listen to it. God, we pray this morning that as we listen to your word that we would... Uh, experience your presence in it. We pray that you would give us grace to understand it. I pray that you would give me grace to communicate it. We just pray that your Holy Spirit would come here and and meet us and help us to see and savor Jesus and to trust the gospel as we consider your word together. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right, verse 1. O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. First point that I want to consider from verses 1 and 2 is that when you trust God, when you follow God as, as a member of the people of God, the world will hate you. The world will hate you. David says, I have a lot of enemies. There's a lot of people who hate me. He's obviously thinking primarily of his son, Absalom, who's chasing him and trying to kill him. But the weight of that one son, right, like kind of the, the, the weight of Absalom trying to kill him kind of against the backdrop of the love that he has for Absalom. It's his own son, right? I mean, he, you know, 50% of his DNA is shared with this guy, right? He, it's his own flesh and blood. So David loves Absalom. Absalom wants to kill him, and that's just this devastating reality for him. And so, so that uh, almost feels the same to David as if everyone in the whole world, right? All, all, many are my foes. Many are, right? D- David, you know, the most particular danger is Absalom, but he kind of feels as if, you know, thousands of people are, are pursuing him and want to, to kill him. And so that's descriptive of what David was feeling and experiencing. But it's also prophetic of what the people of God should expect, of what Christians will experience when they walk with God in and among a world that is hostile to God. In John 15, Jesus says, if the world hates you, talking to Christians, talking to believers, if the world hates you, Just know that it has hated me, Jesus, before it hated you. If you were of the world, 
then the world would love you as its own. But because you, Christians, are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, no servant is greater than his master. If they, if the world persecuted me, then they, the world, will also persecute you. Whoever hates me, hates my father also. They have seen and hated both me and my father, and indeed they have hated me without cause. And so the reality for the Christian living in this world, ever since uh, the fall, ever since the, the first sin of Adam and Eve, right? The, the reality is that the world is uh, not inclined toward God, nor is it neutral, but it is, it is actively inclined away from God toward rebellion against God and rejection of God. The world hates God. The world hates Jesus that God sent into the world to save them. And the world hates the people that Jesus has called out of the world, right? The people that the the world understands them to have crossed the picket line as it were they've turned they've they've committed treason they've they've left our team and gone over to the other team to go trust jesus and to worship god and so the world hates god the world hates jesus and the world hates the people of god and all of that is not something that we should find surprising it's not something that we should uh, you know, understand to be particularly scandalous. It's something that we should expect. It's something that God said would happen. The world hates God and hates the people of God. That's what David was experiencing when he says, I have all of these enemies who are rising up uh, against me. And it's what you should expect to experience if you are going to follow Jesus as a disciple. If you're going to obey Jesus and do what he says, instead of doing what the world expects for you to do, what the world insists that you do, you should expect that that the world is going to oppose you, the world is going to resent you, and the world is going to rise uh, against you like it rose up against David. Right? When everyone else does things that you don't do, when everyone else uses language that you don't use, when everyone else laughs at jokes that you don't laugh at, or engages in sinful behavior that you do not participate in, or when everyone else excuses, or uh, permits, or celebrates behavior that you do not excuse, or condone, or, or celebrate, that uh, creates enemies that causes people to rise up against you that causes the world to to hate you and so you cannot walk faithfully with Jesus and also be completely admired and loved and celebrated by a world that hates Jesus you just those those two things are mutually exclusive from one another. You can't be faithful and walk with Jesus and be loved and admired by a world that is opposed to to Jesus. The world's not always going to applaud the the people of God and how they choose to live. We need to be ready for that. As the people of God, we need to be prepared to 
say and think and experience exactly what David is here. How many are my foes? Many are rising against me. That, that doesn't mean that we should invite it. It doesn't mean that we should court the, the you know, um, the hatred of the world. It doesn't mean that we should try to stir up as much outrage as we can because we see it as like a badge of honor or something like that. If we're, if we're doing it right, the world is going to hate Christians specifically because we love God and we want to obey God and we want to love others as God has called us to love them. The world, the, right, the, the world if we're doing it right, the world is not going to hate Christians because we hate them. It's not going to hate Christians because we have drawn the battle lines and we want to you know, adopt this posture of hostility or aggression toward them. The world is not going to hate Christians because we have intentionally made ourselves particularly easy to hate, but rather the world is going to hate Christians because uh, we love God, we obey God, and we love our, our neighbors. There are, there are a lot of combative Christians. I've, you know, I know them. I've been one at times. A lot of combative Christians who are uh, you know, always wanting to fight and argue and win. It's everything is us versus them. They go out of their way, not, not always to say the things that they know that God loves and wants them to say and do, but rather to say and do the things that they know the world hates because they enjoy, uh, you know, they, they seem to enjoy this, this tension between them and the world. And so, um, you know, if, if, we're be, if we're thinking honestly and carefully, then I would say that that kind of posture toward the world uh, might, it may be a function of loving God and wanting to obey God. It may be a function of uh, sinful pride rather than uh, humility and, and obedience. And so I don't, think that, I don't think David has in mind here to say Christians should uh, court and invite the hatred of the world and they should stoke it and cultivate it whenever they can. But what he's saying is as we walk with Jesus, as we love Jesus and obey him, and love our neighbors, it's inevitably going to uh, cause the world to, to hate us. And so we should expect it and not be surprised by it. Verse 2, many, many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. So one of the ways in which the hatred of the world, the enmity from the world, uh, is going to manifest itself is through the world looking at, looking at the Christian and saying, you don't really love God. You don't really, God doesn't really love you. You're not really living out the faith that you claim, right? right? The world, right, uh, if, if verses 1 and 2 right, are to be believed, then the world is going to hate us, the world is going to oppose us, and one of the ways that that hatred is going to manifest itself is they're going to say, you're, you're not even saved. You're not even embodying the heart of God, the, the, uh, the spirit of God, the, the, the gospel that you claim to believe. You're not living like it. The God I know would never say that Jesus is the only way to get to heaven. So anyone who believes that must be prideful and arrogant and narrow-minded. They must not really understand the heart and the mind of God. There is no salvation for him in God, or judge not lest you 
be judged. And so if anyone ever says anything about me or my lifestyle, or if anyone calls my choices into question, then they must not really understand who God is. They're not acting very Christian as far as I'm concerned, right? Part of the way that the world's hatred for Christians manifests itself is by calling their salvation into question, right? Kind of flipping the script and saying, when Christians exhibit Christian faithfulness, when people love Jesus, trust Jesus, and obey Jesus, that's evil, that's intolerance, that's bigotry. And when people lean into sin and rebellion, or when people encourage others to lean into sin and rebellion, or when people celebrate when they see sin and rebellion in the world, that's love, that's tolerance, that's unity, that's, right, that's good. Isaiah 5 says, Woe to those who call evil good and call good evil. Woe to those who call darkness light and light darkness. Woe to those who call bitter things sweet and call sweet things bitter. That's what David was experiencing. People were looking at him, looking at his genuine attempt to walk with God and be a man after God's own heart and saying, there's no way that that guy can be saved because he is, he, because he is, doesn't embody the things that we think God wants him to embody. David experienced, Jesus himself experienced that, right? Jesus in Matthew 12 uh, commits a, uh, does a miracle he casts out a demon out of a person, and the people there say the only reason, the only way he could cast a demon out is by the power of Satan. There's no way that he can be a man of God. He has to be doing this with the power of, of Satan. So people look at Jesus and say, "There's no salvation for him." Right on the cross, right on the cross, as Jesus is dying, people look at him and they say. You know, you claim to be the Son of God. If you were really the Son of God, then why don't you come down off of the cross? Save yourself if you're really God. Why don't you, you're the big Savior. Why don't you save everyone that's there? You like to forgive sins. Why don't you, uh, right, you trust in God. Where's God now? Why, God, why isn't God delivering you like you uh, said that you think that he does? If God's really your Father, where is he now? Right? All through Jesus' life, people looked at him and basically said, uh, what verse 2 is saying, even as Jesus was dying on the cross, that same spirit was in the people that were, that were there. Questioning him, doubting him, scoffing at him, saying that he was not really from God, he was not really saved, and he didn't really have the power to save others. So David experienced it, Jesus experienced it. If you're going to follow Jesus, you should expect to experience that same thing. The world, the world is going to hate you. Then this word selah, you see it three times in the Psalms, see it all over the place throughout the Psalms. It just means uh, pause, right? Kind of a, a take a minute, reflect on it, think about it, you know, let it, let it uh, sink in, just ponder it for a moment. Point one in verses one and two is that the world will hate you. Point two in verses three through six is that God will be with you. So the world will hate you, but God will be with you. Verse three, but you, O Lord, you are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. Right? The, the, world, the world hates me. 
Uh, I've got countless foes who are rising up against me. They're harassing me, accusing me, saying that I'm not really a Christian. They're calling evil good and calling good evil. When it comes to me and my relationship with the world, we're not, it's, we're not in a great place. But God is my shield. David says, God has not called me out of the world and into this new way of life where I'm hated by the world and persecuted by the world. God has not called me to do that all by myself. God has called me to do that and he is here with me. Protecting me, looking out for me, watching over me, taking care of me. When you trusted in Jesus, you, God was calling you into this lifelong journey of discipleship and, and uh, make no bones about it. That journey of discipleship is often going to be difficult and costly. And that sounds like bad news. It would be bad news if you had to walk that life of, of costly, painful discipleship alone but you don't, right? The world will hate you, and God calls you to live a life that's going to invite hatred from the world, and in the midst of being hated by the world, God is with you, right? Matthew 28, surely I am with you always until the very end of the age. Hebrews 13, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. So God calls us into a journey of costly discipleship, and he's there with us in it. As our shield, which means every weapon, every arrow, every bullet, right? I mean, every, every spiritual weapon that the world throws at us, God is there to uh, defend us from them, to uh, absorb them and deflect them and protect us from them. The Christian can persevere and can endure through the persecution of the world, because God is there preserving us and empowering us and giving us grace for that task. So God is our shield, and God is the one who lifts up our head. So when I'm suffering, when I'm in pain, when I am uh, in despair, when it seems like my life is crashing down, I have nothing to live for, no hope, right? With David, right, and when my own son is chasing me through the wilderness with a deadly weapon, he's trying to kill me so that he can take my throne from me. Even then, when things are at their worst, God lifts up my head. He brings light out of darkness. He brings order out of chaos. He brings salvation out of brokenness and hopelessness and despair. God is my shield. He lifts up my head. Verse 4, I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. Which, you know, is kind of a picture of salvation, if you think about it, right? The, the idea of a, of a broken sinner who's uh, at the end of his, you know, rope, at the end of his, his means, calling out to God, crying out to God, I am suffering, I'm hurting, I have no ability to save myself, and I need help. And then here's God on his holy hill, totally self-sufficient. He doesn't owe anything to anyone. 
And yet God willingly chooses to listen and answer His people when they cry out to Him. The sinner who deserves wrath and judgment calls out to God, asks for mercy. God, who is sovereign and totally self-sufficient, hears and answers and saves. So the world will hate you. God will be with you. And then what's particularly beautiful we'll see in verses 5 and 6 too is that, that um, God being, right, as bad as it is to have the world hate you, which it's bad, right? That's not, that's not a pleasant uh, position to occupy. We're created in God's image. We're created to know and be known and to love and to, to be loved, right? We're, we're, cre- we're relational creatures on purpose. God who himself is relational and triune, created us in his image to be relational. So so the idea of severing a relationship or the idea of experiencing hatred and hostility and enmity as opposed to love and unity is painful, it's unpleasant. But the beauty is that God's being with us is bigger and better than the world's hatred of us. The world hating you is bad and difficult, but God being with you is far more good than the world hating you is bad. God being with you is far more good than the world hating you is bad. Verse 5, I lay down and slept, and I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. So, so as bad as it is for the world to be hating me and persecuting me and wanting to kill me, God's love, God's presence, God's protection is stronger than their enmity and their hostility. So much so that David can lay down and sleep despite the fact that there are people literally looking for him, searching for him, so that they can kill him the moment that they see him. Anyone, anyone here a fan of a, of a good nap? Not a, not a big, I'm not a big napper, but I do enjoy them when I, when I get them. But a good nap or a good night's sleep, there's something, you know refreshing and restorative. It's hard not to love a good nap or a good night's sleep. Here's the thing about sleep, though. Right? Uh, as great as, as sleep is, uh, sleep, and especially sleep when you're in a hostile environment, when there are enemies or predators nearby, you can't really do it. Unless there's someone there looking out for you, you know, taking, right? If you're in a hostile environment and you're all alone, you might be able to get some sleep, but it won't be good sleep. It won't be deep sleep, right? You'll be sleeping with one eye open, right? Gripping your pillow, right? It, it won't be good or, or, or deep. The good, deep sleep only comes when you're totally safe and totally secure, And ideally, when you know that there's someone who's watching out for you, looking out for you, standing guard for you, and David says, that's what God is doing for me, right? I can spend my waking hours working hard, doing everything that I know that God has called me to do, loving him, serving him, loving my neighbor. 
I can do that all day long and then I can lie down and close my eyes and I can go to sleep trusting that everything is going to be okay while I rest because God is there. He's watching out for me. He's looking out for me. This idea that I can sleep and know that God is there protecting me is kind of reminiscent of what David says in Psalm 23. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies, right? Uh, eating is another, eating and sleeping are two things that like you don't, you, it's hard to like eat or sleep while also maintaining a defensive posture, right? If you're going to, if you're going to sleep, you are inherently vulnerable. If you're going to eat, if you're going to sit down at a table and eat food, you have to put all of your armor down and you have to, you know, concentrate on eating and therefore you're not being able to concentrate on protecting yourself and watching out for people who are going to, to attack you. David says, I can do that. I can make myself vulnerable. I can eat. I can sleep knowing that God is with me. God is looking out for me. God is protecting me and God is taking care of me. So things that you can only do when you're safe and David knows and believes and trusts that he is safe because God is keeping him safe. God is protecting him. It's interesting. The, this, the, you know, these verses, verses 3 through 6, have everything to do with the sovereignty of God. God's bigness, his strength, his ability to protect me from my enemies when they want to hurt me, kill me, destroy me. The doctrine of the sovereignty of God is not always the most popular doctrine in the world. The idea that God is big, the idea that God is in control of human history, the idea that God is in control of my life, that God is in control of the things that happen in my life, including my own salvation, right? The idea that, that um, my salvation is not necessarily the result of something that I did or something that I decided, but rather it's the result of God and his sovereign grace in my life. That is not the most popular doctrine in the world. People often reject it and dismiss it because it, you know, pushes back against their own personal autonomy, pushes back against my free will, it pushes back against the notion that I can do whatever I want, whenever I want, and I'm in control of my life, and I control my destiny, and no one else does except for me. A lot of people are turned off by the idea that God is sovereign, right up until the moment that you need God to be sovereign, right? Right up until the moment when you want to lie down and, and sleep and rest and you, and you need to entrust yourself to someone else. And you need that person not to be moderately strong, not to be, you know, slightly above average in strength, but you need him to be sovereign and omnipotent and you need him to be in control of all things. The doctrine of the sovereignty of God does push back against the idea of our own personal autonomy and our own personal sovereignty. And that can be a tough pill to swallow. But the doctrine of the sovereignty of God also means that God is able to take care of you. He's able to look out for you. He's able to provide for you. He's able to protect you. And that is not a tough pill to swallow. That is a, a warm blanket that you can wrap around yourself and love and that you never want to do without, right? God is sovereign, so you don't have to be. 
It's not God is sovereign so I don't get to be and that upsets me. It's God is sovereign so I don't have to be so I can trust him and trust that he's looking out for me and then I can actually sleep. I can actually rest. I can actually put my mind and my soul at ease because God is sovereign. Even when there are thousands of people setting themselves against me, I can rest and know that God is is there taking care of me. So verses 1 through 2, the world will hate you. Verses 3 through 6, God will be with you. Verse 7, arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the, of the wicked. Right? It's a prayer. It's David praying and asking God to do the very thing that he just got finished saying God does, God has done, God is, and God is always going to be doing. Verses 3 through 6 is this declaration about who God is and how God has saved him. And then verse 7 is this, it's this weird, right on the heels of, of David saying, God has saved me. I trust God to save me. He then says, God, please save me. I cried out to God, God answered me, God defeated my enemies, and then, in the same breath, please God, please answer me, please defeat my enemies. I think that tension of this declaration in verses 3 through 6, and then this plea, this prayer, this request in verse 7, kind of gets at a theological reality that is integral to the Christian life of how God saves us and how we experience the salvation of God. There's a sense, if you trust in Christ, if you believe in Jesus, there's a sense in which God has already saved you. Past tense. We kind of see that in verses 3 through 6. And there's a sense in which God has not yet saved you. A sense in which God is currently saving you, present tense. And that's what we see in verse 7, right? Already in verses 3 through 6 and not yet in verse uh, 7. When Jesus, di- when Jesus died on the cross, he did not simply make your salvation possible. When Jesus died on the cross, he actively, definitively, indelibly, paid the penalty for your sin. He satisfied the wrath of God in a way that is unchangeable, that can never be undone. If you're a Christian, there is no wrath for you in God. There never, there can never be. There's not now and there can never be because it was totally and utterly and forever unchangeably exhausted on Jesus at the cross. That's an event that happened in the past, history, time, and space. It can't be undone. If someone goes to the bank and pays off all of your debts, pays off your mortgage, pays off your student loans, pays off your car, uh, credit card debt, it's over. You're now out of debt, you know, 
The person didn't merely make it possible for you to be out of debt, provided that you do something, right? That you decide to agree with what he did. He paid your debt. You're no longer in debt. When Jesus died on the cross, his last words were, It is finished. And the Greek word there for it is finished is tetelestai, which means it is completed, it is executed, it is done, notarized, right? It paid in full. There is nothing left to be done, nothing left to be paid because it is finished. So when Jesus died on the cross, he paid for your sin, he saved you, past tense, it already happened. And what's also true, enigmatically, is that in order for you to experience the salvation of God and to, to, in order for the benefits of the death of Christ on the cross to be realized in your life, they have to be personally applied and appropriated through trusting in Jesus, through turning from our sin and trusting in Jesus. Christ's death was sufficient to save in and of itself and in order for Christ's death to be efficient and effective in our lives to save us personally, we need to appropriate it through repentance and faith, through turning away from sin, turning toward Jesus, and trusting in, in him. So, so everything I just said about the guy at the bank and the paying off your debts is all absolutely true about the death of Christ. And what's also true is that if someone writes you a check for a million dollars, that check is of little value to you until you sign it and cash it or, you know, deposit it in the the bank. So there's one sense in which we have already been saved by Jesus at the cross. Our debt has been paid. And there's another sense in which we need to be saved by Jesus. And that happens when we turn from our sin and trust in him. Those are both true. Jesus has saved us. And we need Jesus to save us. We need Jesus to keep on saving us, right? Not just from the penalty of our sin, which is done and accomplished and paid for, forgiveness is secure, but we need Jesus to keep on saving us from the power of of our sin. We need him to give us strength through his Holy Spirit to overcome it so that we're not victimized by it into perpetuity. And we're trusting one day that Jesus will save us not only from the penalty of our sin, which is already accomplished, not only from the power of our sin, which he's working out in our lives right now, but from the very presence of sin when he returns and brings final salvation for his people and judgment against his, his enemies. And so because of that reality, because of that kind of already not yet tension as it relates to our salvation and to Jesus kind of accomplishing it, We will often find ourselves, like David, believing and knowing and trusting things about the character of God, the heart of God, the love of God, the salvation that we have because of God's grace. That's verses 3 through 6. And at the same time, we'll find ourselves praying to God, asking God, beseeching God, requesting that God do those very same things that we know and trust and believe that he has done. That's verse 7. We trust and believe that God has saved us, and we hope and pray that God will save us. 
Because that salvation is still happening as we speak, and the final manifestation of it has not fully happened yet. So we know, trust, and believe already, and we hope and pray and ask, not yet. We can kind of see both of those referenced in verses 3 through 6 and verse 7. And then finally, verse 8. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. So, salvation belongs to the Lord. The Lord, God is the one who owns it. It belongs to Him. Salvation belongs to Him. He's the one who uh, made it. He's the one who dispenses it. He's the one who says what happens with it. Right? When, if, uh, if, you, uh, if you own your car, then you have the keys. No one else does. No one can come and just take your car and drive away with it without your permission. You're the one who says, this, I'm, I'm allowing this car to go this place. I'm driving this car to this place. Right? God is the one who owns. Salvation belongs to God. He does it. He plans it. He accomplishes it. He executes it. He applies it. Salvation belongs to the Lord from start to finish. I don't do it. I am not deserving of it. I don't get any credit for it. Because salvation, God is the subject. We are the predicate, the direct object, right? God is the actor. We are the one who is acted upon. Which might seem like semantics. But it's a really important point because it gets to the very heart of salvation and who God is and who we are. At the end of the day, the weight of our salvation has to land somewhere. The decisive factor of why we are saved, why our sins are forgiven, why we will spend eternity in heaven and not hell, the decisive factor has to be attributed to someone. And there's two choices. It's either me or it's God. If someone were to ask you, why is it that you are a Christian? What happened that caused you to be forgiven, to be reconciled to God so that you will spend eternity with Him. One answer that we could say is that it's something I did, right? It's a, a decision that I made. It's a prayer that I prayed. It's a, a I responded to an invitation. I uh, said this prayer. I walked down the aisle when there was a at the revival, I raised my hand when the, the person asked me if I wanted to, to write. Like, and now because of that thing that I did, that is the reason. That's the decisive factor why I have been forgiven. But the problem with that is that every sentence starts with I. I did it. I am the one who accomplished it. I am the decisive factor. And so therefore, salvation belongs to me. which leads to pride, self-righteousness. Look what I have done. Look what I have accomplished. David says, salvation doesn't belong to me. I'm not the one who gets credit for it. I'm not the one who accomplished it. Salvation belongs to the Lord. 
God does it. God accomplishes it. God causes it. So why have I been forgiven? Because God loves me in spite of my sin. Why have I been forgiven? Because God has saved me even when I did nothing to contribute to it. Because Jesus died for me while I was still a sinner. Because the Holy Spirit came into my heart and convicted me of my sin and drew me to faith in Christ. Because God keeps me and holds on to me and will never ever let me go. Right? The, when, the answer to the question of why are you why are you going to spend eternity in heaven with God? The sentence has to start with God. God is the one who does it. God is the decisive acting agent. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Hebrews 12 says, Let us throw off everything, all of the sin that hinders us and that so easily entangles us. Let us throw all of that aside. Let us run the race that's marked out for us with perseverance, and let us fix our eyes on Jesus, who is the author and the perfecter of our faith. Author and perfecter. Starter and finisher. Right? Beginner and completer of our faith, of our salvation. If salvation really does belong to the Lord, like David says that it does, then that means that we are not the ultimate final reason why we've been saved. God is. We don't get credit for our salvation. God does, because salvation belongs to the Lord. Verses 1 through 2. If you love Jesus and trust Jesus and follow Jesus, the world will hate you. Verses 3 through 6, even though the world will hate you, God will be with you, and God will help you. Verse 7, God is with us, God is helping us, that's already true, and even though it's already true, we still hope and pray and plead and cry out to God, asking him to be with us and to help us and to save us. And then verse 8, salvation belongs to the Lord. He is the one, he is the author and the perfecter of our faith. He is the one who gets all the credit for it. And so we can trust him and hold fast to him and pray to him and hope in him, knowing that he will take care of us. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, because Jesus is the Sovereign King, and He has overcome the world. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, uh, so often our lives are marked by suffering, opposition, persecution. So often it feels as if our enemies are many and that they are rising up against us. And yet, Lord, um, even in the midst of that, like David, we look to you. You are our shield. You lift up our heads. And we acknowledge, Lord, that salvation belongs to you. 
We cry out to you. We trust in you. We hope in you. And we rest in you. Because you are sovereign over all things. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.